everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. Today, I'm really excited to talk with uh, Dr. Michael Abramoff, who is an MD, PhD. He's a founder and executive chairman of Digital Diagnostics, which is an autonomous AI diagnostic company. And they were the first to get FDA approval to use this autonomous AI. Michael, welcome to the show. Very nice meeting you. Very, very great to be here. Excellent. All right. So I always start off with this. Why medicine? How did you get into medicine? Uh, I was actually always going back and forth between engineering and medicine when I was in, in high school. So as you can hear from my accent, I was trained in, in, in Europe, did my medical school there. And actually started doing uh, an engineering degree, decided, well, there's not enough interaction with, with humans and with patients, decided to medical school and then found out, well, I actually need to engineering, the more exact, you know, precise part of engineering. So essentially I did a master's in computer engineering, we'd call it now, as well as medical school. For a while, worked in, in neuroscience, so really mimicking the brain with a computer. It was in the late 80s. That was my master's thesis, actually. Uh, later, decided, no, I do want to contact with the patients. Went back to do a residency fellowship in vitro-retinal surgery. But even during my residency, I managed to do a PhD in AI, machine learning. So I've, I've always tried to combine the two. That was hard. People always say, well, you know, it's a great combination, but it wasn't. Really, the only jobs there were at the time was in EHR. You know, why didn't you write an EHR? Well, that to me is not particularly exciting. So finally decided, well, you know, I've been mimicking the brain of the computer so long. Why don't I use it to actually benefit patient outcome? Because I was seeing all these patients who came in for, you know, what is a diabetic eye exam too late when there is also permanent damage and you, there's little to do or too early when there was really nothing wrong with them. And I decided, well, a computer can do a better job here, make it easier for these patients to get the care they need. So I was reading something relatively recently and they said people who have pre-diabetes, by the time you're called pre-diabetic, you already have a lot of damage done to your microvascular system. Is that true? That may be true in some cases, especially in type two diabetes. You know, because we don't exactly know why, when it starts. So by the time it's diagnosed, you know, even as pre-diabetes, there may already be and have a long time of hyperglycemia. And what I think, by the way, I think is all a neural component to diabetic retinopathy and diabetic complications in general. And this neural component also starts developing as a result of most varying glucose level as well as hyperglycemia. So when did you get interested in the hyperglycemia effects on the retinas. Was that during your fellowship, the retinal fellowship? During my, during my residency, I, you know, I used to have, I, I really see AI as a, being applicable for two things, for research, where discovering new mechanisms of disease, as well as for, you know, managing patients and improving patient outcomes. I th in my mind, these are very different. So, but for a while I was combining them where the large research group funded by R01s, making new algorithms for analyzing retinal images, various types, and that allowed me to discover that there is a, this big neural component, neurodegenerative component to diabetes, both in the brain and in the, in the retina. And then the other one is what I call autonomous artificial intelligence, which is essentially the AI making a medical decision, which is what you just talked about, where we worked with FDA, with CMS, with essentially all stakeholders in healthcare to get it to patients. And you know, it's you're now seeing improved outcomes in patients. Because in your seeing improved outcomes, really because of its early diagnostics, you can look at this machine and the machine can basically predict using, using AI, yes, this is a precursor to what will become diabetic retinopathy. 
Uh, well, it's, it's actually, it, it diagnoses diabetic retinopathy and another component, which is called diabetic macroedema. What is important there is we already know how to treat these patients once they have it. So what we are proving, and even randomized clinical trials now, where you put one arm in the traditional way of screening people, and the other way using the AI, and you just see better uptake, better compliance, better referral rates. And we already know that if patients get to, to the care they need with, a provide, with, a, with an eye care provider, ophthalmologist, retina specialist, then they have a better outcome. There's no, you don't need to prove that over 10 years. You can just prove that they get to the care they need and the treatment they need. And is a treatment at least early tighter control of the glucose? Very important glucose levels, you know, diet, uh, you know, losing weight, things like that. That's the early stage of what we call the metabolic stage where you have more metabolic treatment. And then eventually you get to a more advanced stage if that is not enough, where, you know, we have very good treatments, especially in the last 10, 15 years with what you may have heard about uh, anti-vascular endothelial growth factor and treatments uh, for that. Right. They really make a, a giant difference. And, you know, I'm probably getting a little bit out over my skis here, so I don't have to back up and talk to you about your entrepreneurial journey. But what is a neurodegenerative component of this that you recognized early? It's interesting that, as you know, there's peripheral neuropathy and diabetes that is well known. What we didn't know that is, it was, well, it's interesting if you go back in history, 150 years ago, people realized that there's a, there's a vascular component and a neural component to diabetes in the retina and in the brain. You can see it, you know, just by looking at stains from retinas and from the brain. But that was sort of eclipsed by all the focus on the vascular component of diabetic retinopathy. So for many, many years, all outcome measures, all endpoints were about this vascular component, which is macular edema, new vessels growing where they shouldn't grow, vitreous hemorrhage, all these things that blind people. The neural component was sort of not really fully taken into account as endpoints in research. We didn't exactly know what to do with it. And then we were able to show in, in what I call very elegant studies, both in humans and mouse models, that even before there's any vascular change in the retina, you already have neural loss. And so that means that unlike what we thought before that, yeah, sure, you have ischemia, you have other vascular changes, yeah, obviously neural cells are going to die. It actually turned out that the neural cells were dying before you saw any vascular changes. And that sort of made us think a little bit differently about diabetes, what we now call diabetic retinal disease. And I'm actually part of a big group that's re revamping our severity scale for diabetic retinal disease. This has nothing to do with the entrepreneurial activities, of course. This is really the research. Ultimately, it will lead to better outcomes better patient treatments, but that's years away. Do you think that using this technology, we could have an earlier diagnosis for people who are classified as pre-diabetics? In other words, you better start jumping on this now because we already see the changes in your retina. In other words, is, it, is this the canary in the coal mine? It may well helpful, but I'm not going, like you say, over your skis uh, to, to claim too much here. It's, let's call it interesting right now. And it has potential. But we, you know, we are years away from using this as a treatment, as a diagnostic. That is much more obvious with autonomous AI, where we're talking about diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular. We know exactly what to do. When did you first make this leap? Because my sense is when you actually made this leap, you were way ahead of the curve as far as other people thinking about how AI could impact the physician's diagnostic acumen. When was that aha moment for you? I think AI in healthcare is from the 60s, right? And so it's PhD thesis being written about my simple, an AI that helped prescribe antibiotics. 
It just, people still use teletypes at the time. And so it was exciting that you could type a diagnosis into a, you know, a computer. So the most of the excitement was about that rather than the cognitive part, so to say. So that died a slow death. Then in the 80s, that was the time when, you know, the first neural network started, one layer, maybe two layers. I worked on that. The computational capacity just wasn't there and the data wasn't there. So we worked on these simple neural networks. And there was another wave where people were trying to make diagnoses or at least help in the clinic that never went anywhere either. And I think, the mo you know, people talk about deep learning and about new algorithms and about GPUs. I actually think that the biggest reason why we're now successful is that we have way better data, digital data, digital sensors that have high quality data. Before we fed these algorithms with pretty noisy data coming from clinicians, right? For me, listening to a patient and then typing them in and all the translational noise that you introduce that way. And then you never get a good performance. But now we have very reliable, objective data in radiology and ophthalmology, many other fields. And that's why we get so high performance. And now people are actually comfortable, patients, doctors are comfortable with using this in a clinic without even any human oversight. What other applications does your current technology have so these are pretty very limited, you know, but large scale. So this is not a, what you call general intelligence, which, you know, makes all sorts of analyses and, and differential diagnoses. This is more about routine care, especially in chronic care. So we have one for diabetic retinopathy, most important cause of blindness, easily preventable. If called early, we're doing that now. Another one is for uh, diagnosing melanoma, squamous cell, basal cell carcinoma in the skin. We're also relatively straightforward in terms of what you're automating, no large scale. I mean, many people need this. You don't want to build an AI, you know, with millions of dollars for a disease that only maybe a few thousand people have. You know, orphan diseases like that are not the lowest hanging fruit for especially autonomous AI right now. Right. Sure, for research, yes, but not for improving patient outcomes and commercializing this. But when I was back in law school, I remember reading the article and the professor talked about this, that when Big Blue came out, Big Blue was able to diagnose pancreatic cancer by looking at a retinal scan. Do you, did you ever hear this? And they, they, never, they, they could never figure out why it could do it, but it did it with very high accuracy. Yeah, so we're getting into explainability and black box algorithms and understand what they do. If the, yes, the, you can... Okay, the retina represents both, uh, you can look at the vasculature and you can look at the neural tissue, you know, without anything, but, you know, using a fundus camera. So that's exciting because a lot of systemic diseases are represented in the retina, all the way from Alzheimer, MS, cardiovascular disease, stroke risk, et cetera. So yes, there's a lot you can see just from the retina because you see the tissue without any radiation, but it doesn't mean... I'm convinced that it can diagnose a very specific disease uh, like pancreatic cancer from the retina. Sure, there may be changes related to, we see changes in the retina because someone has a malignancy and there's metastases. Yes, that, uh, you know, but it's pretty unspecific, right? Uh, yes, we can see whether someone is at high increased risk of stroke, but it doesn't mean can tell you next week you're going to have a stroke. Right. So the specificity, I don't think is there yet, but, you know, I'm excited to look into their algorithm if they're willing to share it with me. But I would be a bit skeptical when we don't know the mechanism why the retina tells you that very specific thing. Because I can explain you why we see Alzheimer. I can explain to you why the vessels look different in diabetes in, in someone with uh, you know cardiovascular disease, but not with this specific disease. I wouldn't right. know what the pathognomic feature would be. 
Yeah, it just strikes me. And, and, and his point was that, you know, they went literally, you know, millimeter by millimeter across the retina and they cannot figure out what this algorithm was picking up that that was able to diagnose pancreatic cancer with such a high degree of sensitivity. So that was interesting. All right, switching topics to entrepreneurism, when did you all of a sudden go from, wow, this has commercial applicability and I'm going to make this leap because you could have just sold the IP, I suspect, but you made the leap of faith as I'm just going to do it myself. That's a departure. Yeah. So you're thinking of pharma and I thought the same way, you know, with pharma, you fold, you know, you find a new way of folding a protein and someone come in, you patent it and Pfizer licenses it and off we go. Right. And that's the very traditional pathway for a physician scientist with AI that didn't exist. And so I thought the same way and I was actually, I, I was told, well, or I thought naively, if I just do enough scientific publications that this works, people will pick it up and see, obviously, we, you know, how, this is how we can improve patient outcome. Nothing happened. Then I, I, I heard, well, you need to patent it, like you said. And then, you know, there's a whole system in, in academic centers where there, there's a patent mill. And so I, I now have 20 patents, but no one came in to pick up that patent and commercialize it because there was literally, there was no market. There was no industry. There was no reimbursement. There was no... FDA didn't know what to do. So then people said, well, philanthropy is the next solution. And that, again, works great if you have a protein, a new way of folding a protein that lowers uh, death in children. People love donating money to that. Here, it turns out that the biggest hurdle was FDA. And FDA just requires mostly to do reams of paperwork of tens of thousands of pages of paperwork. You know, donors, philanthropists are typically not excited about, you know, donating for paperwork. I mean, you will probably show another pile of paper. They, they don't get excited about that. So philanthropy was out, I realized. And that means that the only way to get this to patients, which I care about, you know, I'm not a scientist for the science. I'm literally a scientist for getting, as a physician, better patient outcomes. I said, clearly I need to do it myself, look for angel funders. And that worked and I could get people excited. And that was enough to raise, you know, the 20 million to, to start talking to the FDA. And that was the big step because People at the time were thinking, you know, this is never going to work with the regulatory framework we have. We'll just break the system. And there is a big company on the West Coast that we're all familiar with that, you know, essentially uh, tried to do that. And, and, and I said, no, I want to work within the system. I'm a physician. I think this can work. Let me work with FDA. So I went to FDA in 2010 and said, hey, I want a computer to make a diagnosis. And said, oh, no way. <laughs> and so, you know, a very collaborative eight-year period in my life uh, where we, you know, developed, how do we do a clinical trial? How do we think about liability, right? The medical liability. How do we think about uh, racial and ethnic bias? How do we, all these aspects, what I now call an ethical framework, needed to solve to make FDA comfortable with this concept of a computer making a diagnosis without human supervision. They were not new to AI. There were many radiology AIs that were being marketed, but they were all assisted. They were always, hey, here's a radiologist, here's an AI, they look at the same scan, they look at the same mammogram, and, and, now, and now supposedly, and sometimes yes, sometimes no, the diagnosis becomes better or more specific or whatever. They were familiar with that, but that is assistive AI. This autonomous idea was very new, but I think in my view, it is necessary to get to patients where they are, which is, you know, in many times and with health inequities, especially, it's very important to go to where patients are rather than have them come to you, which they don't in many cases. And so I think 
that, that was a big step for FDA. I'm very you know, grateful for the collaborative way we have been working together since. And, and you know, I work very closely with you know, writing papers about ethical frameworks and how that can affect regulation. But that was a long road because it was not enough to just get FDA de novo authorization as it's called, because many more steps were needed to get it to patients, which we can get to if you ask me. So knowing what you know now, would you would you do it again? Because you were the trailblazer in this one, and that had to be the, the hardest road to the hardest road to hoe. I don't know. It, you know, looking back, it it needed to be someone needed to do it, and so it just happened to be me. That is not you know any big accomplishment. It just you know I w- I wanted this to happen, and so I went ahead. Where maybe a smarter person would have said, "No way, you know, let me focus on something else now." And and so. I had a lot, you know, it was a lot of fun and, and we achieved a lot, I think. And so it's fine. I don't want to look too back too much and say, well, you know, I had I known this, what would I have done? It needed to happen. Yeah, it definitely needed to happen. And there definitely needed to be someone like you to do it, seriously, because you've opened it. Now you've opened this pathway for, you know, the di- diagnosing melanoma, for all the other things that autonomous AI could do where we don't need a physician or at least improve the outcomes well we improved accessibility right and now those patients that need a physician a specialist they can get it try to make an appointment with a dermatologist right and so six months away now you say oh in primary care can diagnose this now the dermatologist knows that the patient needs their care the same for me as a retinal specialist i know that the ai is referring those patients that need my care and not the ones that there's nothing i can do for them because they don't need me yeah interesting so you raised 20 million early on. Was that 2009, 2010 era? No, no, no. Now we're talking, two th- yeah, 2010, 2011, you know, from angels. And then ultimately, as soon as we got FDA approval, now VCs become interested, right? So we raised another 30. And that was to bring it to market because there was no reimbursement. There was no standard of care that allowed this. There was no quality measure that supported the use of AI. It was all... Every rule, every regulation said you need a physician to do this. In very unexpected places. So we needed to solve all of that. It means getting a CPT code for instance, I had never been done, never been considered. Getting SEQA, who writes the HEDIS and MIPS language, to support the use of an AI, an autonomous AI, to close a care gap. It would never been done. And then going working with CMS to get Medicare reimbursement for autonomous AI, which had never been done. And they did that last year. And then January 1 of this year, we got CMS reimbursement at around $55, which was very exciting because that is cost-saving for them, but it allows so many more patients to get this because now primary care providers are excited because they can bill for it, right? It's a big question. If you're a primary care provider or any physician, one of the first questions with a new technology is, can I bill for this? Even in a value-based care environment. Well, didn't you go out early on and start as an assistive tool and then work your way into an autonomous tool as opposed to going right for the swinging for the fence out of the gate. So I saw others try that or say that or think that way. It's very tricky because there is, you become so accustomed to assistive, you never need to solve these breakthroughs because assistive is familiar and I use it in my clinic, but you, you didn't need to create a reimbursement. You didn't need to create the, all the things I mentioned that didn't need to change thinking. So. I think the only way was to go straight for autonomous. Otherwise, I see many, many others, researchers, companies do that, and they, they think they may ultimately go there. It's very, very hard because you have, you, know, you have an existing TAM, right? You have an existing successful revenue, and now you would take a giant risk, and, and that is just very hard once you are in there. And, 
And so because at, from the beginning we said this is going to be autonomous, we are going to do this every... Many people push back, right? You may have heard I'm, my nickname is the Retinator. And so my dear colleagues in the biggest ophthalmology journal of ophthalmology times, the chair of ophthalmology at Hopkins in 2010, did a big editorial, the Retinator, Revenge of the Machines, because, you know, this tongue-in-cheek, this was going to cost jobs and lower quality of care. And looking back, it was great because it made me realize that you can look at this from an engineering perspective. Hey, let's solve this, right? Let's make it work. But that's not enough because people have concerns. Physicians have concerns, patients have concerns, ethicists have concerns, payers have concerns, and you need to solve all of that. Because, yeah, you can solve the technology, but if you don't solve the, the societal aspects, the ethical aspects, the concerns, then people will still not accept it and not use it. And so it forced me to deal with that, which was very healthy. But at the time, it was uh, it was brutal, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the Retinator's pretty, pretty damn good. <laughs> That's not a bad nickname. So, I mean, yeah, you're a professor of ophthalmology, University of Iowa. What do you see, so I, so I mentor a lot of these med students, pre-meds, and I always tell them, I said, you have to look at the impact or how AI is going to impact your particular field as you're going through it. So I say, I'm not sure I'd want to be a pathologist or a radiologist unless it was interventional these days, because I think it will be the retinator taking over a lot of what they do today. Where do you see medicine going what specialties do you think are a risk for really having a sea change in the way they, in the need for physicians? I like to give a you know positive uh, twist on it. I, I think the specialties that both diagnose and also treat, in, like you say, interventional or otherwise, I think there's a lot of promise there to, typically there's not enough of them. We're not doing enough. In, you know, there's many underserved communities, many underserved people. So moving it out to primary care and other places where the patients are as close to the patient as you can be, that leaves space for actually treating more patients by specialists like, like me and, you know, and, and the people you mentioned. So that's what I tell them. I tell them, you know, the more we will see a shift towards more treatment, more interventions and less low yield diagnostics. I think right. that's where the biggest bang for the buck is. Yeah. So if you're a specialist, you're going to get patients that really need your your expertise as opposed to top of license, top of license, better patient mix. So I mentioned this, the retinator, and you would think that, you know, ophthalmologists are still concerned about this. They're the biggest supporter. I bet. American Medical Association, American Academy of Ophthalmology was the strongest force in creating the CPT code because they see the potential for indeed getting more patients that need their expertise. So we turned it around. But again, if that retinative thing hadn't happened, you need to deal with the concerns that are out there and be frank and open and very transparent about it. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Michael, where can people learn more about you and more about digital diagnostics? Because you're going to be, I think people are going to look at your story and look at you and think, I want to be, I want to be like this. I want to change the world. Yeah, I'm always happy to help people on that that path. And uh, they see it on our LinkedIn page and on digitaldiagnostics.com. On the company website, and I also have, of course, a faculty web page at, uh, at the University of Iowa. I'm well, easy to find. I think I have a Wikipedia page that I do not <laughs> look at, uh, but it's there. Well, thank you very much. This has been really entertaining and really insightful. And I said I love the combination of AI and medicine, so I've been so looking forward to this discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening.